Well, good morning, church. Hey, it's good to be here with you. Uh, if you're a guest, I want to give you a warm welcome. Those of you watching online, hey, we're uh, glad as always that you are uh, tuned in. Uh, this morning is a standalone message, um, but I want to give you a preview. Next week, we're going to be kicking off a new series called The Scarlet Thread. And we are going to be looking at some things in the book of Genesis that point us to the coming of Jesus Christ. We're going to be looking at a prophecy. We're going to be looking at some people, some characters, and even some events and objects that we believe are there to tell us what God's plan was from the beginning, to send Jesus into the world. And so I'll be honest, I'm a little excited for this series. I'm also a little intimidated for this series, but I encourage you all to uh, be here next week as we kick off the Scarlet Thread uh, series starting next week. But this morning is a standalone, and I'm going to answer this question. This is, this is the question I want to answer this morning. Uh, what is a disciple? What does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, right? Like, even if you're not overly familiar with the church and church language and, and stuff like that, you probably have at least heard of the 12 disciples and are aware um, uh, that there's this word disciple that's used in the Bible. But, but Jesus is actually, uh, he didn't just call 12 disciples to himself. Um, he's actually calling us today to be disciples of his. Uh, disciples exist today. This is something that Jesus is still calling us to uh, in, his, in his ministry, his heavenly ministry. He's calling people to be disciples. And so just right out of the gate, I want to give you a definition, a very general definition of what it means to be a disciple. And I defined it this way. A disciple is a wholehearted follower of Jesus Christ. That's what a disciple is, a wholehearted follower of Jesus. You know, we've probably all been at least to one funeral in our lifetime. At least if you're a little older, you've probably been at least to, to one funeral. I've been to many funerals, as you can imagine, as a, as a pastor of a church. I've, I've, I've uh, you know, led many f funerals over the years. And one of the things I've noticed about funerals is, like, some funerals, you know, you just show up, and, 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 and yes, there's grieving because we're obviously going to miss the person who has passed. But there's also kind of this celebration. There's also kind of this this uh, hope, and you can feel it in the room, and you're just like, uh, we know where this person is. We know they're with Jesus. Uh, we know that they're be they've been restored. The things I talked about last week, they know they're, we're, they're celebrating and dancing in this place called heaven right now, and you can feel the celebration in the room. But, but if I can be honest, okay, and I, and I hope we don't groan at this, I, and it's just me being an observationalist, okay, having been at many funerals over the years, there are also funerals where you show up, and even though the person was known to be a Christian, you're kind of going, ah. Ah. Now, don't groan at that, right? Like, can we just be honest a little bit? We've all been at that funeral. Well, maybe I shouldn't say all, but maybe many of us, and you're just kind of like, I hope so. I think so. I want to believe that that person is in heaven right now celebrating with Jesus, right? It's one of the things I've challenged you over the years. I've said, don't make us pastors lie at your funeral. Help us to tell the truth. 
The difference between that person you're celebrating and you know and there's no shadow of a doubt and that person you're just kind of like, I hope so, the difference is one was a disciple, a wholehearted follower, and the other was just a Christian. Friends, in the Bible, the word Christian is only used in the New Testament three times. The word disciple is used 269 times. Clearly, Jesus is calling us not to be just Christians. He's calling us to be disciples, wholehearted followers of his. Okay? And this morning, what I'm going to do is I'm going to look at what Jesus says about discipleship. In, in Luke 14, Jesus goes out of his way to make it very clear what a disciple is and what a disciple looks like. Okay, I'll ask us a few questions out of what Jesus says. Um, and let me just say, some of you in here today, maybe you consider yourself a disciple. You're like, yeah, I'm a committed follower, a wholehearted follower of Christ. I'm going to ask these questions, and it will be good for you to examine that in your heart. Am I really a disciple of Christ. Others of you, maybe you would put yourself in that Christian category. Maybe today's the day where Jesus tugs on your heart and says, it's time. It's time to step into something more. It's time to actually become a wholehearted follower, to become a disciple. We'll, look, we'll see what that looks like. And then others of you, I get it. You, you maybe are coming into church for the first time or the first time in a long time, but maybe you're just kind of kicking the tires uh, about what this, this, this Jesus is about and this Christianity thing. I just want to say that that's okay. It's okay to do that. In fact, before I get into what Jesus says about discipleship, let me show you how the story sets itself up. This is in Luke 14, 25. We read, large crowds were traveling with Jesus and then turning to them, he said. So there is a crowd following Jesus. And maybe you've never thought about this, but Jesus actually used strategy. He used a process in his ministry. He would oftentimes draw large crowds to himself by doing miracles, uh, by, uh, you know, his teaching, which they said, this has an special authority. This isn't just anybody like the Pharisees teaching. This teaching has an authority. He doesn't just like to argue with people. There's something different. And by doing that, he was able to draw a large crowd that would, would follow him, okay? And that's okay. And maybe that's where some of you are. You're in, in the crowd. But at some point, Jesus is going to want to turn to you and call you to be more than just a person in the crowd. He's going to want to call you to be a disciple. And so that's what's going to happen this morning. And so here's the first question I, I want to ask us. Do I love Jesus above all else? That's the first question for us today. This is the first mark of a, of a disciple. Do I love Jesus above all other things, above all other people? In my life, look at what Jesus says. This is what he turns to the crowd and starts off by saying, imagine this, if anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple, okay? Now, Jesus is clearly not being literal here. We know from other passages, he teaches us to love our family, to love everybody, especially our, our families, okay? But what Jesus is saying is, your love for me should be so great that in comparison, it's as if you hate everything else. Meaning, if there's ever a conflict of who wins, me or someone else, I win every time. And so he's saying, it's in comparison... To me, it's almost as if you hate because I'm always going to win out in every other relationship 
in, in your life. But here's the irony of this. Here's what I've discovered. Um, how many of us would admit, okay, that sometimes if you're married in here, living with your spouse can be difficult? Now, I'm not going to say that. Valentine's Day is right around the corner. I have plans for my wife, Valentine's evening. And so I'm not going to say that. I, I am going to steer clear of that. But here's what I will say. So as not to disrupt the plans in the whole household, okay? In my marriage, I will say this. Um, I can be difficult to live with. And sometimes I can be uh, 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 that difficult person to get along with. But here's, here's the reality that takes place in my marriage. My wife loves Jesus than she, than she loves me. She loves Jesus more than her love for her husband. And because of that love, Jesus is able to pour into her. He's able to pour patience into her. He's able to pour grace into her, patience into her. And so when I'm at my worst, my wife is still drawing from something that allows her to love me. How many of us would say living with teenagers can be a challenge? Not here at Edinburgh Church. I get that. But you've heard of this, right? Like teenagers can sometimes be a little challenging, like hormones changing and, and, and those kinds of things, right? But see, when we, when we love Jesus more than we even love our kids, when we love Jesus more than even our teenagers, now we're drawing strength. Now we're drawing life. Now we're drawing love from a higher place, a higher power, a higher authority. And now we have what it takes to love our teenager even when they're difficult. And that's the problem. When we turn our spouse, when we turn our families, when we turn our children into our idols, when we turn them into the thing that's going to fill us up, the reality is at some point they're going to disappoint and then we've got nothing to give. But if we love something that's higher, someone who will never disappoint, then we can be filled with love for people even when they're hard to be with. This is the blessing that comes from putting Jesus first in our life, I'd ask you the question again, is Jesus first? Do you love Jesus above all other things and all other people? Second question, God's will or my will? Have you committed to God's will or are you committed to living out your will? Look at what Jesus says next. Verse 27, he says, and whoever does not carry their cross... And follow me cannot be my disciple. I wonder what comes to mind for you when you think of a cross. You know, it, crosses, we see them on church buildings. Some people get tattoos of crosses. Some people get jewelry of crosses. But did you realize that the cross was actually a device used by the Romans to punish and kill people? Jesus is not the only person who died on a cross. The cross was a Roman device used to punish criminals. And they treated Jesus as a criminal, which is why he was hung on a cross. And ultimately, it was to kill you. And here Jesus is telling us to, to take up a cross. What is he talking about? Well, ultimately, what he's saying is that we have got to be willing to put our will, ourself, what the Bible would call our flesh, our, 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 our desires that are not of God and that rebel against God. You've got to be willing to put those things up on a cross. You've got to be willing to crucify those things, to put those things to death. In other words, I'm going to live out God's will for my life. I'm going to crucify my will on 
a cross. You know, I look around at Christianity today and I see a lot of Christians who don't love their enemies. They're on the other aisle, side of the aisle, politically. Not a lot of love. Maybe sometimes even hostility. We see that show up sometimes on social media, things like that. Yet Jesus calls us to love everyone and to just specifically calls us out to love our enemies. I see a lot of Christians in, in the U.S. who sometimes don't think it's their responsibility to forgive those people who have hurt them. And don't get me wrong, friends, it's not easy to do, and it doesn't mean we can just automatically do that, but are we at least trying? Is there at least a desire in our heart to do what God has called us to do and to forgive? I see a lot of Christians out there, especially in the U.S., who call themselves Christians but don't ever serve or want to be a part of the local church. And friends, that, that's a hard one for me. So I'm not saying, like when I read the Bible and I read the scriptures, I read about the bride of Christ, which is the church. It's called the bride of Christ. Jesus obviously cares very much for it. He, he bled for it. He died for a church body. And when you read about heaven and the bride and the marriage that's going to take place there, he's talking about the church. And so people that aren't a part of that, I don't know, maybe. But I'll be honest, I'm, I'm going to be at those funerals going, I hope so. I just got to be honest with you as your pastor. Now, can we all be honest for just a second? Sometimes it is hard to get to church. If <laughs> you got kids and you know how that is, something, it's what, is it like negative 30 out there today? I mean, what is it? It can be very hard to get to church. I, I, it reminds me of the story of, of the man who he didn't get dressed for church. And his wife said, why aren't you dressed for church? And he said, the people there don't like me. They always expect something from me, and I'm not going to have a good time. And she said, well, there actually are people there who like you. They don't expect too much of you, and you might just have a blast. And you're the pastor, so put on your clothes <laughs> and get to church. I mean, we are all going to have days where we don't feel like going to church, but friends, I'm telling you, you can be a Christian all you want. If you're going to call yourself a disciple, you don't just get to church. You're a part of the church. You serve in the church. It is the bride of Christ. It's messy. It's hard. It's imperfect. But it is God's plan to bring hope to the world. That's what disciples do. You can be a Christian, but if you want to be a disciple, you've got to belong. And that doesn't have to be Edinburgh Church, but some other gospel-preaching church. You've got to be a part of that if you want to be a disciple of Christ. Now, to do all these things and to live out God's will, I can tell you, in fact, Jesus is going to tell us, there will be a cost with that. You are going to have to pay a cost if you're going to live out God's will over your will. In fact, Jesus goes on to say this in verse 28. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying, this person began to build and wasn't able to finish. In other words, this is a person who didn't count the cost. They didn't realize there's going to be a cost to being a disciple of Christ. And then he goes on in the next verse and says, In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. 
Now, he's not saying he's going to ask you to give away everything. But what he is saying is that you are going to have a, have a posture. You're going to have to have a posture of surrender. And God, it's all yours. I am just a steward. Everything I have, it, it, it's yours. It belongs to you. And God, what you tell me to do, where you tell me to go, that's where I'm going. That's what I'm going to do. This is what Jesus is calling us to. God's will over our will. And with that, there is going to be a cost. And I just wonder, is your Christian faith, is it costing you anything? I think that's a, that's a question, another question we need to ask. Is it costing me anything? I, I worked with a guy many years ago. I used to travel around for my job, and so I'd meet all kinds of different people. And I'd run into this guy a few other times, so I kind of knew him. He was a Muslim who came from a Muslim family. And it turned out that he and his brother had snuck, literally snuck a Bible into their house to start reading the Bible. Now, they weren't believers, but they were, for some reason, drawn to the Bible, and they were reading it. And he found out I was a Christian at work this day. And so for like three hours, he was peppering me with questions about Christianity and about my faith and about Jesus. And so for like three hours, <laughs> we, we had this amazing conversation, didn't get a lot of work done, but had an amazing conversation. And, and I'll never forget when we walked out into the parking lot because um, he was struggling. He's like, I just don't know if I can accept that this Jesus is real. I don't know if I could give my life to this Jesus. And the Holy Spirit gave me this prayer for this young man. He was like in his early 20s. I, um, I, I feel like it was from the Holy Spirit. And by the way, I've used this prayer for us as a church many times since then. But it was on this night that God gave me this prayer. And he said, just pray for him that I will reveal myself to him and make myself known to him. You can't do that, Brent, but I can do that. So I just prayed, Lord, I know you're real. Reveal yourself to him. I never saw him again, but I thought about him often over the years. And so like two and a half, three years went by, still in this job, when I run into his brother, his brother did the same thing he did. And so I run into his brother. And of course, the question I want to know is, how is your brother doing? We had a conversation like two and a half years ago. How is he doing? Turns out that both these brothers had given their life to Christ and then had been disowned by their family. They both had to drop out of college because their parents were paying their tuition. They didn't have enough to pay for it. And now they were just trying to figure out how to do life. Friends, they were willing to pay that kind of price to be a disciple of Jesus. And I just wonder for us, what is it costing us? Now, it might not cost you that much. It might not cost you all that. But I'm telling you, if you're a disciple, there should be a little cost. And if you don't see that, maybe you're more of a Christian than you are a disciple. Okay. But this brings us to the third question that I want to challenge us with. Am I set apart or am I worldly? Set apart here, by the way, would be translated in your Bible. Usually it's the word holy. Are you holy or are you more worldly? Okay. Verse 34, we read this. Jesus says, salt is good. But if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is fit neither for the soil 
nor for the manure pile. He says it is, it is thrown out. It's good for nothing really just to be thrown out. This word salt, um, you know, back in the first century, they would have understood salt to be something like we do today, flavors food. Uh, the idea here is that as Christians, as, 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 as disciples, we bring joy and hope and peace where we go. There's something about us that flavors up the world. Okay? But it wasn't just that. The, the, the idea of salt also was, was a preservative. Okay? It was something that they would rub on the meat to keep it from spoiling. Do you understand that one of the things Jesus is calling us to is to live out a Christian ethic to be peacemakers, because in a sense, we preserve the world. We keep goodness to a degree in the world. Can you imagine if God took all of the disciples out of the world, what would happen? One of the things God wants to do with his disciples is make sure the world is being preserved and that there's a semblance of God's goodness, his grace, here on earth, okay? And so what Jesus is challenging us to is to, is to not lose that saltiness. Because when they would mine for salt back then, you got to keep in mind that it was that, that salt was rare, and, and and there was far more sand and stone and things like that than there was salt. And so the trick was to filter out the salt to keep it pure, and, and not let it be contaminated with the sand and other things, the soil and rock. Okay, to get to it took some work because. It was the salt that was precious. It was, it was the salt that was, that was rare. So I brought some salt. Anybody got this kind of salt in their home? Seems like it's uh, everywhere, okay, these days. But this is what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying we're like, we're like salt. And I, I don't know if you can see that. This salt is it's pure. Danielle and I obviously use way too much salt because there's not enough <laughs> left in here, but I, I hope you see that pile that's starting to form. This is pure salt. I mean, if already this would sting my tongue. This is uh, this is potent. But what would happen? If I took sand started mixing it in little rocks mixing it in with the salt anybody want to put this on their food? Friends, this is what happens to us. The world sneaks into our life. The world creeps into our life. We begin doubting that all truth is God's truth. Maybe we begin doubting that Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. Maybe we start saying things like, I can define reality however I want. I don't care how God defines me. I don't care how God defines reality. I can make up my own reality and be whoever I want, think however I want, do whatever I want. Friends, anybody going to want to put this salt on their food? Probably not. This is what Jesus is saying. It's not good for anything. Now, it's not even good. You could put this on manure. It's not going to even do anything. 
And isn't that so often the problem with Christianity today? We let so many philosophies and other teachings in, movies, shows, and I'm not against those things, but they can subtly get in and start corrupting the way we think and the purity and the preciousness and the specialness of what Jesus is calling us to, to be salt. Now that raises the question then, how do we prevent that from happening? How do we stay pure? How do we stay precious? How do we keep living saint-like lives, how God says and defines us? How do we live out this holy calling to be disciples? In the New Testament, there are three uh, Greek words that is translated word, okay? The first word is graphe. Can you say graphe? Graphe. It's a Greek word. It just means the words that are on any page. Just words on a page. That's all it means. If you had a letter, it'd be called a graphe. But then there's a second Greek word. And this Greek word is logos. Can you say logos? The logos is the meaning of those words. It's the content behind those words. It's what the words are trying to convey or what the author is trying to convey to us. So in the case of the Bible, it's what God is trying to convey to us. That is the logos. And here's the thing. A lot of Christians know the graphe. There's even a lot of Christians who know the logos, who know what the Bible is trying to say. But there's a third Greek word, and this word is the rhema. Can you say rhema? Rhema is God's Word spoken directly and personally into your life. The rhema is God's word spoken personally and directly into your situation. That is the rhema. I believe that is only something the Holy Spirit can do when the Holy Spirit takes the word and speaks directly to you. Some of you know this, you've heard the word of God, you've read the word of God, and in the season of life, you read that one passage and it, it was applying to your life to do something or to comfort you in some way, but then years later, you're in a completely different life situation, you read the same passage and what happened? It spoke something different to you. There was a different application for your life. That's why the Bible says, the author of Hebrews, that the, the, the word of God is living and active. The meaning doesn't change, but the application and what God's trying to tell us through it in different seasons of life does change. The Bible is special. The Bible is what teaches us how to be a disciple. It's the Bible who teaches us ultimately about Jesus and what a relationship with Jesus looks like. So we had a friend who met a guy, eventually got married. She met this guy online. They didn't see each other for the first two years while they were dating. He lived overseas in Europe, and so all they, were, they would do is they were in this chat room together, and they would talk to each other. And he started writing her these, these, these letters. And you got to be careful with chat rooms, by the way. I mean, you got to be careful with that stuff. There's predators out there and all that. But this guy loved her, and he started writing her these letters, and they would talk every day. And eventually, she fell in love, gave him her heart, even though she, at this point, hadn't even seen him face to face. And Danielle and I were eventually invited to their wedding. How in the world, from just words on a computer screen, did she fall in love with this guy? Because there was a living person behind those words. 
Friends, there is a living person named Jesus behind this book who wants to speak into your life today. He wants to tell you that he loves you. He wants to tell you that he forgives you from, for every sin, past, present, and even the sins you haven't committed yet. That's how much of a relationship he wants with you. And he wants to teach you how to be his disciple. So, how am I going to love Jesus above all else? i got to get to know him through his word. How am I going to live out God's will? i got to learn what God's will is through his word and why it's precious. And how am I going to live a set-apart holy life? By being a student of the word. Friends, I want to challenge us. Get to know Jesus through his word. And you might just find yourself wanting to become a disciple of Christ. He's good. (laughs) Amen? Amen. Here's what I want to do. I want to talk to us for a little bit. Can we just bow our heads? You know, sometimes you hear a message like this, and you might get this impression, like, being a disciple sounds brutal. Being a disciple and taking up a cross, man, who would ever want to do that? Friends, I would tell you that while there is a cost to being a disciple of Christ, there is a far greater cost to not being a disciple of Jesus. I've seen families broken. I've seen people emptied. I've seen people devastated. And ultimately, I am not sure where people are going to spend their eternity who aren't willing to pay the cost of discipleship and follow Christ. I would say the cost is far greater not being a disciple, but here's what I also want you to hear. Do not think that taking up your cross and following Jesus is a bore, because it is not. Can you imagine if the disciples hadn't been willing to become followers of Christ, what they would have missed out on? Friends, they lived an adventure of a lifetime. I'll tell you, as a disciple of Christ, I have lived the adventure of a lifetime. My life is not boring. Unless I may be watching the Vikings. I just had to throw that in there. That was was wrong. I got to tell you, my life is never boring. And I'm not exaggerating. Jesus always has something for me. If, I'm, if, I have bo- if I have time, free time, you know what Jesus, he shows up, he's like, pray. Journal. Read. Because <laughs> I'm preparing you for something. I'm preparing you for something new. I would actually say being a disciple of Christ is a blast. And it will be an adventure when you make that decision. Others of us, I know you come in here today And again, with your heads bowed, I just want to speak to you because I know maybe you come in here heavy-hearted. Maybe you come in here in some ways feeling like a failure or like you've blown it or like God would never receive you to be one of his disciples. Let me remind you that Peter denied Jesus three times at the cross, that he even never knew the man. And Jesus shows up and says, no, you're going to be my disciple, Peter. If you deny me, you're going to be my main disciple, Peter. I believe if Judas had repented and turned back, Jesus would have said, come and follow me, Judas. That's who our Jesus is. 
He is a gracious and loving and forgiving God who wants to have a relationship with you. That's why I love Matthew 11 when Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. He says, take my yoke upon you. What is he talking? What's his yoke? It's his word. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. I love this. For I am gentle and humble in heart. Some of you need to hear that. Jesus isn't mad at you today. He's humble. He's gentle in heart. He's saying, I want, what I'm mad about is that I don't have a relationship with you. What I'm mad about is that you're not turning back to me. What I'm mad about is that you don't realize how much I love you. That's what I'm mad about. He says, if you do that, I will bring rest to your soul. We read in 1 John that if we have a sin that we need to confess, we can confess it because our God is faithful and just to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's why Jesus bled and died for us, friends, because he wants a relationship with you. He can cleanse you. He can make you holy today, set apart, renewed, restored. You can walk out of here today renewed and set apart to live the life Jesus has called you to. So I'm not calling us to be Christians today. I'm challenging us. Is it time for some of us to become disciples? I believe Jesus is speaking to some of you right now saying it's time. It's time to stop with this casual Christianity and it's time to become a wholehearted follower of mine. And if that's you, I just want to pray with you. We can just kind of pray this in our, in our heart when you say, Jesus, I do love you. I recognize what you have done for me. I am ready to commit my life to you today, Jesus, as a disciple. I want to learn your word. I want to become a student of your word. Maybe it's time for some of you even to consider getting baptized, right? There's a baptism class after this service, and that just came to me. Like, you know, baptism is a way of saying, hey, it's time to be a disciple. But Jesus, I'm going to need your help to live this life. So come into my life today and fill me with the spirit. Fill me with a renewed passion for who you are, for your church and your kingdom that you want to build here on earth. Jesus, I'm going to ask for you to be first and center in my life. And I'm going to tell you right now, I love you, Jesus, above all other things. May your will be done in my life. And all of us who want to be disciples said, Amen. Well, church, hey, we're going to get an opportunity to stand and respond to what we've heard today. Let's let Jesus know how much we love him. Amen? Can we do that?